Our gospel reading this morning comes from the book of John, the sixth chapter, and can also be found in the middle of your bulletin insert should you wish to read along. I'd also like to invite you simply to close your eyes and receive these words as your heart might. When the crowd found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Humanity will give you. For it is on him that the Holy has set God's seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom God has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, God gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but it was the Holy who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Here ends our scripture reading for this morning. Sometimes one of the more difficult tasks in preparing to preach is deciphering the intended connection that the lectionary has made between the Old Testament selection and the Gospel reading. This is not that surprising, really, as we attempt to translate this ancient standardized schedule of Scripture readings into the Word of God for us today. The challenge, of course, comes with trying to figure out the thinking of those who linked the particular readings and what they intended to highlight the selections. Today would be a great example of this. What does a crowd asking Jesus for food have to do with David's adultery, betrayal, and then murder? of his best friend and closest ally in order to cover up the inconvenient fact that David had impregnated his friend's wife. First, the incidents occurred thousands of years apart. Secondly, in our Old Testament reading, we have a blatant abuse of power by a king who wanted what he wanted regardless of the fallout. By contrast, in our gospel reading, we hear requests of an impoverished, mostly chronically underfed population, simply hoping to fill their bellies 
once more. It is important to note, I feel, that what we call food insecurity today was a way of being for the crowd following Jesus to the other side of the lake. The daily meal was the lived reality of the levels of societal import. Women and girls, the most worthless and expendable of the population, gathered food and cooked. Men sat at the table and ate. Male children ate next. And then if there were leftovers, the women and girls could eat what was left. Jesus, of course, knew this reality himself. And yet as the Christ, he also knew how God longs for equanimity. So with all that said, my curiosity was piqued by the tone of the gospel reading. I just kept thinking to myself, how come Jesus is being so snippy with the crowd? Now, of course, there are always two sides to every story. And in Jesus' defense, our passage this morning follows directly on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. That, of course, is why the crowd is following Jesus. But it also follows the event of Jesus walking on the water. That is how Jesus gets to the other side of the lake. Interesting to note that the crowd makes only passing reference to when Jesus arrived, not how. But even if we grant him his snippiness, unlike David's inexcusable abuse of power, the crowd's mistake, if you will, was simply being clueless. Perhaps, trying to wake them up a bit, Jesus admonishes the crowd to do the work of God, which is, he says, believe in the one whom God has sent. So here is our clue to unlocking this passage. Believe in the one whom God has sent. And what might that mean? I believe that my recent visit with my granddaughters might add some perspective. My grandbabies are still teeny tiny. The eldest, Annika, is now just barely over two years old. The younger, Arya, is eight months. And being eight months, of course, Arya really doesn't know enough not to smack you or herself in the face or dig her fingernails into your skin or her own. She simply is not old enough. Annika, at this point, does know enough, but needs an occasional reminder that there are others in the world with needs, with wants, with limitations. Developmentally, this is a completely appropriate growing edge for any two-year-old as they experience power and control for the first time in their lives, and she is no exception. Now, this may be difficult to believe, but I am way older than two. 
And I too want what I want when I want it. In fact, I would go so far as to say that all of us, me, you, and everyone else, have encountered situations in which it would have been so easy to behave in a manner similar to the crowds, if not David. We are all human. Like David, we love our power. Like the crowd, we want and need our bellies filled. So in the fullness of our humanity and our propensity to let our inner two-year-old run amok every once in a while, what are we called to when Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom God has sent? What is it that we are to believe in? Jesus, of course, but how? Do we believe in Jesus? In an article that I found by Nick Green entitled, What Germans Said About American Troops After World War I, there is a quote from Chief of Staff for General von Einem, you'll have to excuse the pronunciation, commander of the Third German Army that goes as follows. I fought in campaigns against the Russian army, the Serbian army, the Romanian army, the British army, the French army, and the American army. All told in this war, I have participated in more than 80 battles. I have found your American army the most honorable of all our enemies. You have also been the bravest of our enemies and in fact the only ones who have attacked us seriously in this year's battles. I therefore honor you and now that the war is over, I stand ready for my part to accept you as friend. We are barely 100 years away from when this statement was originally penned. And yet, how many of you could imagine these words being spoken about the U.S. today? And I'm not talking about the armed forces, just in general, as a country. Could anyone How many of you swallowed hard as you witnessed the separation of children, some as young as my Annika, from their parents? How many of you listened in disbelief as you heard the statement from the mouth of our current U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions saying, I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves and protect the weak and lawful. Is this what we are to believe in? 
the just do what I say, obey me because I say so mentality. Is this the faith that you know? God, I believe, expects more of us than that. Our gospel reading today ends with Jesus proclaiming, I am the bread of life. So how? How is Jesus the bread of life? The Seventh Avenue Council recently penned a statement regarding the ongoing immigration crisis in this country. Through all the political muddle, the heated rhetoric, and the basic intolerance that has become the hallmark of our society, there is a single sentence within this statement that I believe sums up exactly what we are to believe in and how Jesus is still for us today the bread of life. It very simply states, Jesus says that there is nothing more imperative than to love and to welcome. Clean, simple, straightforward. God does expect more than survival of the fittest and blind obedience. God does expect more than for us to continue behaving like two-year-olds when we are no longer two. God does expect us to love. And how do we do that? I believe that we begin by recognizing that we as individuals as well as a society are not the center of the universe and not all the posturing in the world will change that fact. I believe that we as followers of the Christ are called to expand the recognition of our integral rather than our central position in God's creation and take that recognition into action, small ones and large ones. The forms these actions will take will be as different as we are. Some will be called to rally and march. Others will be called to fundraise. Others will be called to write or teach or make art or maybe even, my friends, preach. But in whatever form it takes, I believe that the call to believe calls us to expand and grow beyond our two-year-old selves, tame our two-year-old brains, and trust that we don't have to pitch a fit, hit, or start a nuclear war to get what we want. We don't have to name call, demonize, or terrorize to be powerful. And in fact, doing so using the words of David's confession is to sin against God. In as little as 100 years, we have gone from a people who were respected as the most honorable to a country that cannot be trusted to leave a child with his or her parent as they request asylum. The word of God has been twisted as it so often has before to be used as an instrument of oppression
and subjugation rather than a balm for the powerless and the poor. There is no imperative to love in any of those actions. But the word of God is always, always, always good news. So what's the good news to be received from our reading today? The good news is that Jesus is, in fact, the bread of life, just not in the way that those that want to fill their bellies think of it. Jesus' good news is that God's connective spirit fills us with each breath and beckons us to grow in our spirits, not just our bodies, and blesses us, should we allow it, with more perspective, more patience, more compassion than a two-year-old is capable of. Jesus is the bread of life because he knows with every fiber of his being that there is nothing more imperative than love. That alone is the motivating, animating force in Jesus' life and in his life with us here today. It is up to us if it is to be ours as well. Amen.